Well, good morning, church, as we return to the book of Acts this morning from our little detour in Philippians, pursuing really the, the driving purpose of Paul in his life. Where we're coming to a text that, that actually gives us a curious contrast between the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of John the Baptist. Because really, what do these two passages at the end of chapter 18 and the opening of verse 19, remembering that chapters are added many, many, many centuries after the fact, what do they have in common? They have in common a misunderstanding about the role of John the Baptist. Both of them do. Well, what is the relationship between John and Jesus? See, in chapter 18, we run across this guy named Apollos. He only had had known the baptism of John. And then we get to chapter 19. We see these disciples in Ephesus, and they'd never heard there was a Holy Spirit, and they had only been baptized into the baptism of John. And reading this roughly 2,000 years after the fact, we can wonder, like, what's the deal? Why are they still following John the Baptist? But we've got to remember, John the Baptist had a massive impact on the people of Israel, didn't he? A massive impact. I mean, I mean, he's seen as a prophet, and his death at the hands of Herod really sealed his popularity among the Jews, Whereas on the other hand, Jesus is seen through a completely different lens in that, in that unlike John, the religious leaders had, had rejected Jesus. And Jesus was also crucified by the Romans. On top of this, unlike our day and age, The early church does not have access to a publishing house. They do not have access to a radio ministry. They don't have a social media feed to bolster their gospel ministry or clarify the gospel message. They don't have any of that. No, no, what are they relying upon? The early church is relying on almost exclusively the public ministry of, of appointed ministers like Paul and the personal ministry of everyday Christians just like Priscilla and Aquila. That's how the gospel is moving throughout the entire ancient world. Yes, we have appointed apostles and appointed ministers and we also have the ministry of everyday Christians. As we dig into this account today, we're going to see in this contrast between what happens at the end of 18 and the starting of verse 19 that there's a significant difference between a gospel misunderstanding, which is going to be Apollos, and missing the gospel altogether. There's a significant difference between having a misunderstanding about the gospel and missing the gospel altogether. So let's begin with this gospel misunderstanding in chapter 18, starting in verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, even though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more 
accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Now, now before we press into this, this error that Apollos has, let's actually take a look, closer look at this guy Apollos himself. Because if you know your New Testament, you know that this guy is a very important figure in the early church. Just turn to 1 Corinthians later on and read, especially chapter 3. He had such a powerful impact in Corinth, which is where he went right after this, that there's people saying, I follow Apollos, instead of I follow Paul. He's a powerful guy. But what about Apollos himself? What do we see in this text? Luke tells us he's a Jew. He's a Jew and he's raised in Alexandria, Egypt. That is the second largest city in the Roman Empire. It was founded in 331 BC by Alexander the Great. And by the first century AD, it functioned as the intellectual and cultural hub of the ancient world. This is a city that is built around a massive museum and a 400,000 volume library, which in that day was inconceivable. Massive library place of knowledge and learning secondly Luke tells us that Apollos is an eloquent man who is competent in the scriptures and when we say the word competent here the Greek word behind here is powerful he's a powerful preacher of God's word when he preaches there's power and and this this is high praise from Luke but it gets even better Apollos has been instructed in the way of the Lord. That is, he has been formally taught the gospel of Jesus Christ in such a way that he talked accurately about the things concerning Jesus, verse 25. He's been taught the gospel and he's preaching the gospel. He gets who Jesus is. He gets why Jesus came. He gets what Jesus has accomplished. He he understands how does a person find forgiveness through faith in Jesus and he understands about the glorious return of Jesus Christ. He understands those things. Even more, Luke's word choice in this section points scholars to the conclusion that Apollos is not doing this out of his personal charisma out of his trained eloquence, but the power of the Holy Spirit himself because he's speaking fervently in spirit. And while we could read this as this is Paul, or I mean this is Apollos just being an eloquent speaker, what have we seen about powerful preaching throughout the entire book of Acts so far? Where does powerful preaching come from? It doesn't come from people, it comes from the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8 You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Then, and only then, will you be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. And who in this text is powerful in their preaching and teaching about Jesus? It's Apollos. So so in all of this, Luke, Luke is keying us into the fact that Apollos is a true believer. He's a true Christian. He's heard the gospel He's teaching it effectively. He's ministering by the power of the Spirit. He's anchored in the Word. 
Yet for everything Apollos has right about the gospel. Everything that Apollos is teaching properly from the scriptures. He had, he had one significant thing wrong. He didn't understand the purpose of Christian baptism. He, he didn't grasp this entailment of the gospel. So what does it actually mean that Apollos only knew the baptism of John? He, he only knew it. Well, why don't we actually use Paul's own insights in chapter 19, verse 4, that we're actually going to see here a little bit later. But 19, verse 4, what does Paul tell us about John? John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. If you ever want a one-verse summary of John the Baptist's entire ministry and its purpose, it's this. This is why John came. Baptized with the baptism of repentance, not telling people to believe in him and to follow him, no, but to believe in the one that, who is to come after him. That is Jesus Christ. See, this helps us understand that John's baptism was a public act of repentance before God in a commitment, a public commitment to await and embrace the Messiah when he arrived. All the people that John, are ba- John is baptizing, this is the purpose to which they are being baptized. See, see, to put it simply, John's baptism is a preparatory rite that pointed people forward to the messianic era which would arrive in Jesus Christ. That's what John's doing. So when it comes to Apollos, yes, he's preaching about Jesus and the gospel accurately, but as, but, as, but as Priscilla and Aquila are listening to him, evidently something comes up in his teaching that's confusing or, or it's misleading. Because he starts calling people to actively receive the baptism of John after they've received everything it's pointed to, salvation in Jesus Christ. I mean, can you imagine what this would look like in everyday life? This would look like buying your wife an engagement ring after you get married. That, that, that's, that's kind of the relationship between John's baptism and the coming of Christ. It's like, it's like sometime after you get married, like, oh, well, let's get an engagement ring to show everybody that we're betrothed. No, no. See, John's baptism pointed forward, just like that engagement ring points forward to the day that you're going to get married. It's saying, I'm spoken for and I'm waiting. That's what John's baptism is doing. It's a beautiful thing about this account. Is it Priscilla and Aquila don't publicly expose or denounce Apollos in front of everybody in the synagogue. They don't say, you know what, we spent like almost two years with Paul, and Apollos, you are off track. We know what we're talking about. They don't confront him. They invite him over for dinner. They bring him over to the house. Whatever it is, they, they, bring, they invite him over to privately address the issue. 
See, they recognize Apollos, he needs to understand the ordinance of baptism and how it needs to be reinterpreted in light of the Messiah's arrival. He needed to know that Christian baptism celebrated the arrival of everything that John's baptism taught. And as such, Christian baptism was the public means by which the church acknowledges both an individual's faith in Jesus Christ and their active participation in all of the benefits of his saving work. And he needed to know that there's a picture in baptism, in Christian baptism, when the person is plunged underneath the water and raised up back again, that they're enacting the spiritual experience of their salvation, dead in their sins, died with Christ, raised to new life in Him. I'm a new creation in Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. coming up out of the water, forever clean and acceptable and pleasing to God, forever united with Jesus Christ because Jesus has made us clean. Apollos needed to know that. But in this, Luke never depicts Apollos in a negative way. He never depicts his faith in a negative light. Priscilla and Aquila don't tell him to go get baptized. And on the other hand, after they have this interaction, we quickly move forward and the church is writing a letter to send Apollos as an affirmed minister of the church to another region. He just had one area of doctrine that was out of order. It was an area that didn't undermine the gospel. It was an entailment to the gospel. See, Apollos is a genuine believer. He just needed a little gospel clarification. Just like many of us do, at some point or another in our Christian life, often early on, but even as we grow up, depending on what background you grew up in, not, not, not every church, because of how they're organized, presses harder into doctrines and explaining what, what the various ordinances mean. As a result of that, we can have various ideas about what they're about. But they didn't attack him like he wasn't a Christian. So some application right here. Given that these, these two accounts are compared and contrasted. I, I want to actually deal with the, some application with Apollos, then we'll deal with some application with Paul. Number one, I think that we see a praiseworthy model for everyday Christians in this text when it comes to Priscilla and Aquila. We see a praiseworthy model because, because all too often, we're, we're, we live in this, we, we see Christians that are quick to openly attack other people over areas of what we might call doctrinal incompleteness, like Apollos. He, he's just a little off base. 
Sometimes they attack other Christians over acceptable points of doctrinal disagreement. Places where there's, there's, like throughout the centuries of the church, the church has said, yes, this is an area where we're trying to, we, we don't have complete disagreement, we don't have complete agreement about these areas of doctrine while we do agree about the gospel. Things like when is Jesus going to return and what's that going to look like? Things like how active is God in mankind's salvation? There's, there's those kinds of questions. Yet, yet especially it seems like in, in our culture we're triggered to just jump in and attack when somebody is merely off base on an area of doctrine that just needs to be clarified. I just seen this text. What did they do? They, they don't openly attack Apollos. They don't denounce him as a false teacher. They recognize. They recognize that his gospel preaching is doctrinally sound. They recognize the gospel's there and he's preaching it. And they're excited and they hear it and they know it's right. And then they hear his teaching about baptism. They're like, oh, that needs some fixing. But it didn't undermine the gospel. See, they invited him over to help him with the truth. They didn't berate him for his mistake. And and, and I want to highlight this because it should help us see how much it would serve the body of Christ if mature believers, because that's what Priscilla and Aquila are. They're examples of mature Christians how much it would serve the body of Christ if mature believers were willing to lovingly engage people who are off on an area of doctrine or even lovingly engage growing but still maturing teachers. Because the reality is at any point in time in the church, we have people that are growing up in their ability to teach and they're teaching in areas and sometimes they just need a little refinement in what they're doing. They need an opportunity to learn and grow. But turning to Apollos, that's, that's an, taking a look at Priscilla and Aquila, but how about Apollos? The thing I love about seeing Apollos in this text is that for all of his knowledge and his boldness and his giftedness, Apollos is a model of Christ-exalting ministry in that he is willing to humbly listen to and learn from Priscilla and Aquila. He's not the kind of teacher who says, like, what do you have to say? You guys don't know nothing. You haven't had the kind of training that I've had. No. No, for everything we see in the text, Apollos isn't prideful. He's not arrogant. He listens and he learns and he incorporates the proper understanding of Christian baptism into his teaching. He humbly listens, he engages. And this is important because if a teacher's competence in the scriptures does not compel them to listen to others and to search the scriptures along with them for their each and every answers, things will not end well for either that teacher or for their listeners. We're never given an example in God's word where a teacher simply knows everything and they don't have to listen to anybody else. 
See, on the one hand, no matter how gifted a teacher is, if they won't listen, their public ministry will be persistently deficient. Apollos was solid in almost every area, but this one issue would have led to constant confusion going forward if he didn't understand what baptism was really about. And on the other hand, if a teacher is unwilling to listen, it ultimately reveals a far greater deficiency. Not just a deficiency in their doctrinal understanding, but it reveals a deficiency in their character. That's what it reveals. It means that they're more committed to their public image or their ideas than to the accuracy of what they proclaim. And the, and the, the impact of a teacher is always on the accuracy of what they proclaim. We don't serve ourselves when we teach. We serve God. We are stewards. Our ministry is only as effective and God-glorifying as we effectively communicate what God has revealed in his word. So things we can learn from both Ananias, not Ananias, from, from Priscilla and Aquila and from Apollos. But that brings us to the second half of Luke's comparison. Second half. Whereas Apollos is a true believer who misunderstands an entailment of the gospel, what we see here in chapter 19 are a group of disciples, that we'll put that in quote, disciples, who have missed the gospel altogether, starting in verse 1 of chapter 19. And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. We haven't even heard there's a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Now, when we come to this second half of the comparison in our text this morning, I think it's important that we acknowledge that there's some corners of the church that believe the disciples in this passage are, are believing Christians who have not yet been filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, you know, like the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8 that we saw with Philip. They'd, been, they'd believed, they'd been baptized, and, and they had not had an obvious filling of the Holy Spirit until Peter arrives. And, and on account of the belief, they actively teach that the filling of the Holy Spirit is something that comes days or months or decades after a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ. But I think if we look at the biblical record of these events, we can see a significant difference between the Samaritans' experience and the experience of these disciples in Ephesus. Most notably is the fact The Samaritans had heard the gospel, believed the gospel, and been baptized into Jesus Christ. 
Acts chapter 8, verse 12. Now when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Notice, they believed what was preached and they were baptized into Jesus Christ. And as we saw in our study of this text, which was roughly about a year ago, somewhere, is it, is it the surprising thing in chapter 8 was after they believed and after they had, had been baptized, they had, there had not been a noticeable filling of the Holy Spirit. In fact, that's why Peter leaves Jerusalem and travels to Samaria to begin with. Chapter 8, verse 14. Now when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen. That's, that's like he hadn't fallen. There's a problem. But they'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, now we don't have the time to walk through everything that we did in that text when we went through the last time. If you'd like to look that up, it's online, the curious delay of the Holy Spirit, and you can, you can walk through that sermon. But let's focus back on these disciples next 19. What I want you to see is their experience is different. Their baptism was never into Christ to begin with. Their baptism was into John. They never even heard that there was a Holy Spirit. See, that, that's a significant contrast with both the Samaritans and with Apollos. See, see, the Samaritans, as we just read, had believed the gospel. They were publicly identified as Christians through baptism. Apollos had been taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, just like the Samaritans, but he only knew the baptism of John. See, for everything we see in the text, Apollos and the Samaritans are true Christians, whereas the disciples in chapter 19 are not. As one scholar notes, perhaps perhaps they gave the appearance of being Christians when Paul first met them. Whatever the precise designation of their discipleship, Paul soon expressed doubt about their spiritual condition and their answer to his questions quickly showed that they were definitely not Christians. See, he's asking questions. He meets them. And if you think about it, it's really possible that, that maybe along the way that they've learned about John's teaching through a second-hand witness. They, 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 were, they were baptized into John, but by somebody other than John the Baptist himself. Because to be baptized into John and also not even to have an understanding of the Holy Spirit means that they've missed an important aspect of John's teaching as we see in Luke chapter 3, verse 16. John, John the Baptist, answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's part and parcel of John's teaching. And these disciples have evidently not heard that part. See, they need someone to help them recognize that they are inadvertently trapped in a theological time warp between the Old and New Covenant. That's where these disciples are. 
They're, they're in a theological time warp. They, they haven't recognized that everything that was promised has arrived and they're living as if it hasn't. See, to put it plainly, these disciples don't need gospel clarification like Apollos. They need to be instructed in the most fundamental truths of the gospel. That's what they need. They need the fundamental truths. See, Paul wants them to see that they don't don't grasp the true significance of their baptism in John because John's ministry was never about John. It was never about him. Rather, his ministry was a public summons to repentance and active preparation to embrace in faith the one who's going to come after him. The one who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Everything pointing forward. And here's the key. If they're truly John's disciples, how should they properly respond if that is John's teaching? They should best honor John's teaching and his memory by actively believing and receiving Jesus Christ. Not by clinging to a long dead prophet. And from everything we see in the text, that's what they do. They do, because even though the text doesn't tell us believe, what does Paul do next? He baptizes them, lays on his hands on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. What did they need to know? What message did they need to hear? They needed to hear the basic message of the gospel that Jesus lived, died, and rose again for sinners. And God will forgive and forever restore anyone who turns and trusts in Jesus. That's what they needed to hear. That's what they were missing. And, and, and this, is, this is important. Because these disciples are probably living very godly lives. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Remember, live, live in a way that God has called you to live. Don't be living as a hypocrite. Repent, walk, and, and live in a life that's bearing the fruit of Repentance. Live a life in obedience to God. These are people who are taking God's word seriously. They're living a holy life in in every ability in their own actions that they can. They're trying hard. that's, that's That's what John's disciples look like. They take it seriously. But for all of their obedience, all of their religion, which is not directed just to their self-exaltation like the Pharisees. What does John call those guys? Brood of vipers. Right? These aren't people who are living like them. They're, They're not living in obedience and trying to follow the law as a way to make much of themselves. They are living to the glory of God. They are walking the path of repentance. They care. 
And apart from hearing this gospel message and responding to Jesus by faith, they are eternally lost and damned in their sins no matter how good they behave. They are shut out from the kingdom. Even though they've received the baptism of John, they are shut out from the kingdom unless they respond in faith to Jesus Christ. No amount of religion can overcome the barrier that can only be handled through faith in Jesus Christ. I think this is one of the reasons why Luke uses this term disciples here. I think Paul thought when he first met them that they were Christians. But they're not. So what in the world can we take from this account today? What what can we take from it? After all, we don't have disciples of John the Baptist running around anymore. We don't need to go straighten those guys out. Well, I believe the clearest application in the second account is really, for us as Christians, a call to gospel discernment. There's a call to gospel discernment. Let's just kind of walk quickly through this, this encounter again with Paul and these disciples. He comes across these disciples, and when he runs across this, this, this group, normally this term disciple in the New Testament always means a Christian. It almost always gets used that way unless we read in the Gospels about John's followers. They're also disciples. So it's easy to assume that they're they're disciples of Christ. And again, as I already mentioned, Paul might initially be assuming they're disciples of Jesus Christ. But they're not. They're disciples in the sense of John is that they have repented of their sin. Yes, they're doing everything in their power to live a life that brings glory to God. But they have not yet come to faith in Jesus Christ. There's a deficiency in their, if we want to call it, religion. They're living a life of much religion, but there's a deficiency. And as Paul listens to them, he realizes he needs to ask some clarifying questions. He needs to ask them to expose the root of their hope. Yet as Paul gets down to the bottom, just like before, he doesn't, he doesn't berate them. He doesn't, he doesn't make them look stupid. What does he want to do? He asks questions so he can help them, them see their true condition and their desperate need for Jesus Christ. See, the challenge for us as Christians today in this is number one, that countless believers all across our nation just struggle to even talk about their own faith outside the four walls of the church, outside the four walls of their home. Struggle to talk even about our faith. But how much more 
How much more do we struggle to actually listen to and actually assess this religious beliefs of beliefs of the people that are around us? Are we listening? Do, do we hear what people are saying around us? I mean, I think the sad truth of the matter is, is that for many American Christians is that even though that we are convinced that eternal forgiveness and eternal joy requires repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. We'll say that all day long. We believe that in our heart. Our interactions with other people can actually make it appear appear as if we believe that moral living and spiritual sincerity are sufficient grounds for a right standing with God. We can give that appearance in our interactions. Let me share with you some penetrating insight penned in 1874 by the Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle. And just to put that in context, that's like nine years after Seattle was officially founded and incorporated as a city. And he's a man who's doing everything in his power to preserve the gospel in the English church that was quickly losing it. So an extended quote here this morning. But to press into this point, I want you to think about sincerity of an individual. He says this, there are thousands who say in this present day, 1874, we have nothing to do with the opinions of others. They may perhaps be mistaken, though it is possible they are right and we are wrong, but if they are sincere and if they are earnest, I want you to hear that, if they're sincere and if they're earnest, we hope that they will be saved just like us. If they're earnest and sincere, we just hope they'll be saved like us. And all of this, he says, sounds, it sounds liberal, it sounds charitable. We don't want to be judgmental, right? But he goes on to say, I cannot find in scripture that anyone ever got to heaven merely by sincerity or was accepted with God if he was earnest in maintaining his views. The priests of Baal were earnest and sincere when they cut themselves with knives till the blood gushed out. But that didn't prevent Elijah from commanding them to be treated as wicked idolaters. The Manasseh, the king of Judah, was doubtly earnest and sincere when he burned his children in the fire to Molech. But who doesn't know that he brought himself great guilt in so doing? The Apostle Paul, when a Pharisee, was earnest and sincere while he made havoc on the church. But when his eyes were opened, he mourned over this as a special wickedness. Let us beware, therefore, of allowing for a moment that sincerity is everything and that we have no right to speak ill of a man's spiritual state because he is earnest in his opinions. Once we allow such notions to be true, we may as well throw away our Bibles altogether. Sincerity is not Christ and therefore sincerity cannot put away sin. Sin. 
This is what I mean when I talk about gospel discernment. No amount of religion and good works and hopes in anything but Jesus and Jesus alone is the grounds of our salvation. See, see what's Ryle's goal in this? He's calling his readers, he's calling his church to engage the religious beliefs of their countrymen with gospel discernment. Which is our call in this text. Because the honest truth of the fact is that we live in a religious environment where professing Christians spend more time fighting within the bounds of Christian orthodoxy. Within the bounds. While at the same time, not even really considering the true spiritual condition of the people that are around them. Yes, we have doctrinal convictions, and that is good. And we need to know how to defend them. But sometimes we focus on that to the expense of the people that are around us who are actually lost in a sincere and adamant approach to God in their own works and in their own religion, and they are in fact lost. Good deeds and spiritual sincerity are not the path to spiritual life. They're not. The church doesn't need more social media warriors attacking people like Apollos. What we need is more Christians who can listen to the people around them with gospel discernment and speak the necessary truth with gospel clarity, like Paul and Priscilla and Aquila. So as we close, I really have a simple challenge. And that is whether you're at work whether your mom at homeschool co-op, your family hanging out endless hours at Little League. I mean, tally that up. How much time do you spend on the sideline there? Right? Whether you're out mountain biking with your friends, whatever you're doing. Well, whatever you're doing, make an effort to actually listen to the people that you're with. Listen to them. Ask them questions. Just ask questions. Get past the surface distractions of life, of the weather, and the event that you're participating in together. Yes, enjoy it. What are they passionate about? What drives them? What do they think about spiritual things? And when you're on the sidelines or in any other event where you're hanging around for a number of hours with somebody, you have the opportunity to ask any number of questions. You're just getting to know them better. And as you're listening, ask yourself a question. What's their hope? What's the grounds of their hope? Is it anchored in Jesus and Jesus alone or is it in something else? 
be because identifying the object of their hope it is really getting us to the first step of explaining how Jesus is the true and only answer to their earnest but misguided spirituality. That's how we begin to see. And that's, I think, the call in this text. Discernment. Being able to tell who is a Christian but just needs a little more instruction and who looks very spiritual, very religious, and very moral, but who does not know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus himself said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Let's close with a prayer.